Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 16. Luke 16, 1 to 13. This is known as the parable of the unrighteous steward. The parable of the unrighteous steward. That's how it is commonly known. Today we will learn some lessons from the unrighteous. Not just the unrighteous steward, but just the unrighteous. Verse 1. Now he was also saying to the disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous steward, because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own time than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, this parable is a well-known parable known as the parable of the unrighteous steward. This is actually... It, to some interpreters, quite an enigma. What is Jesus talking about here? Why is he describing and elevating the actions of an unrighteous, wicked man, a shrewd man, who behaves in ways that are wrong and sinful, or ways that are manipulative? He tries to manipulate the situation in order to save his own skin. That's what's going on here. Well, what Jesus is doing is explaining from unrighteous or wicked actions, from evil people, how we ought to learn spiritual lessons from their behavior. That's what he's doing. Teaching us to learn what is good and righteous and pleasing to God from the actions of evil people, which should not surprise us. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, he, there he's listing some evil things that had happened in the Old Testament, with the people of Israel. He lists some things that they did. They worshiped idols, they committed immorality, they grumbled against God, and then God punished them in various events and situations in the Old Testament. So he says why he's explaining a big list of evil incidents. 
Why is he explaining a list of evil incidents in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians? He says in verse 6, Now these things happened so that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. So that we not crave evil things as they also craved. That's the reason. That's why they happened, and that's why they were recorded for us to learn that we should not be like them. In fact, the way that they loved evil, we should actually love good. The way that they loved the world, we should actually love God in a greater way than they loved the world. That's what he's saying, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Another example is Jude 7, where Jude says of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. He says that the sins that they committed and the punishment that they received are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Why are they an example? They're an example for us or anybody else who hears of that, that we not behave like they behave, but actually behave with the kind of zeal and enthusiasm they have for evil. Instead, use that enthusiasm for the things of God, for the heavenly things. That's the opposite. What they did for evil, we should do for good. Well, that's the same as what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's doing in Luke 16, 1 to 13. In the first verse, we note that it says, he was also saying to the disciples. When it says to the disciples, it does not mean that nobody else heard what he was teaching his disciples, because in verse 14 it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. He's teaching the disciples, but the Pharisees are there they hear what Jesus is teaching the disciples. The Pharisees love money, they're listening, and they scoff at Jesus. So, what is meant for the disciples' benefit is also meant to confront the sin of unbelievers, hopefully that they might repent of their sin, and if they don't repent, that they receive a just penalty from God for their refusal to repent. It also, in verse 1, 16, 1 says, that there was a certain rich man. Why is he addressing riches or a rich man and that the steward of the rich man squandered his possessions? Isn't that what we had in chapter 15? We had a rich father who had two sons. One son took the riches and squandered the riches in a distant land. So naturally it would come to mind, well, what then is the right way to use our riches, our wealth, our money, our possessions? What is the best or right way to use them? That question would naturally arise after Jesus explained the parable of the prodigal son in the previous chapter. That's his concern throughout this chapter, the rich man. What will the rich man do with his wealth? Because we see also in verse 19, there was a certain rich man. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19. Therefore, he's addressing people who have riches and who actually love their money. They love their riches and how evil people, worldly people, fleshly people, they love their money 
and they don't want to repent of that. However, we who know God, when we have money, we should do the right thing with the money we have and not squander it and not use it for earthly and worldly, fleshly, carnal things. Don't use it for that, but use it for the kingdom of heaven. Use it for the kingdom of God. That's what we should do with our wealth. Therefore, he says, though the steward of the rich man, the steward or the manager of the rich man, it said, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Here, in this case, we have a rich man and we have a steward or a manager of the rich man's money. And it was reported to the rich man, the owner of the money, that his manager mismanaged all the money. He mismanaged it. Verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. He wants to fire him, but he wants to first do an accounting of what he has done before he fires him. So, verse 3. And the steward or manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. Okay, so he says, he's got to figure out a plan. He's got to use his mind shrewdly, as it says later in verse 8, he had acted shrewdly. He acted with a lot of thinking and forethought about what his circumstance was and how he's going to spare his skin from being fired by the from the owner or the master. He wants to see how he can be spared. So he is so desperate that he uses his mind to the utmost for his own benefit. Think about that. He did wrong, but now that he did wrong, he wants to spare himself. He wants to spare himself from misery. He doesn't like misery, right? Because he says in verse 3, I am not strong enough to dig. He's some kind of a weakling of a man, right? He's not strong enough to dig. So he doesn't want to go and dig ditches. He doesn't want to go do that. And he says he's got a lot of pride because he says, I am ashamed to beg. I don't want people to see that I used to be the steward of that one master who has this big house, big land. Everybody knows him. Everybody knows him in the town. They know his name. And I used to work for him. I used to manage all of his money. But now I can't do that because I was such a miserable failure in doing so. So now I'm a beggar. He doesn't want that reputation diminished. So he's, he's worried about his reputation and he's worried about whether he has enough strength and energy to do the job. So he says, I don't have those. I don't want to pursue it though, that way, those two ways. So I'll do this. Verse four, I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not only going to see what I can do to make up for what I mismanaged, but I'm also going to cut deals with these people, cut deals with these vendors. I'm going to cut deals with them so that when I am terminated, fired from my stewardship, those people will see that I was brilliant enough to cut a deal with them and to save them some money. And if that's the case, then maybe they will hire me to work for them because I cut a deal with them. So he says in verse 5, And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, 
a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. A hundred measures of oil. So he cuts it in half. He says, You owe me a hundred measures of oil, but just pay half of it. Um, a hundred measures is about 90, 80 to 90 gallons of oil. So let's just say roughly 100 gallons of oil. That's how much he owed. But he says, just cut it in half and just give me 50. Just give me 50. All right, well, that sounds good, wouldn't it be? If there's a debtor who owes this master, the rich man, 100, and he says, oh, okay, you can get away with just paying 50. That sounds good. He doesn't explain why. He just says, okay, that's all you need to pay. So he is giving the other the impression that he is a good manager, a shrewd manager, a wise one. He's got the knack to deal with money and business in a way to get the debtors to pay up. See what impression he's giving this first debtor. The second debtor, verse 7, then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. There too, he's getting a discount, a discount on the debt. The 100 measures of wheat, this would have been probably about uh, 10 or 100 bushels of wheat, 100 bushels of wheat, which would have been about 800 gallons, 800 gallons. So he says, cut it. So it was about 100, take it and write 80. There he gets a 20% discount. That sounds good to that one too, to that debtor. So verse 8, his master finds out about this, and his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. Okay, he had mismanaged for a while, but now he's managing it well enough to get money out of the debtors. Presumably the debtors were making excuses and, and presenting delays as to why they weren't paying up. So now they paid up. And so the rich man is getting some of his money, the money that is needed. And so he praises his steward because he acted shrewdly. He acted with cunning or with wisdom. He was brilliant enough when he was very desperate to do the right thing. Now, what was the purpose? The purpose was to save his own skin. He didn't want to be on the street. He didn't want to go around as a beggar. He wanted to have a home in which to live, whether it's this rich man's or one of these two debtors. They, maybe they will think that I am smart enough to be hired by them. Now, he did it for these worldly reasons, just because of his pride and just because he wanted to feed his mouth, right? So Jesus says, verse 8, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. He said, the example or the moral of this story or the parable is the sons of this age. The sons of this age. This age means this world because there is this age and the age to come. The Bible speaks of this age and the age to come. So this present world, he's saying, the sons of this age, the sons of this present world, the people of this present world are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Unbelieving people act more shrewdly with greater skill and forethought with each other and greater zeal 
with each other in order to spare their own skin and to fill their stomachs. They do it in a better way with great zeal than we do, he says. He says, than the sons of light. The sons of light are the believers. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong when the sons of light or the believers are twiddling their thumbs, squandering their time, squandering their money, amusing themselves with all kinds of entertainment. It's wrong when the sons of light are doing that and they have no zeal for the things of God. In fact, we should be ashamed when that happens. We should be ashamed and tighten our belts and get ready for action. That's what we should do. That's his point here. Isn't that what happens often? How many Mormons, Mormon missionaries since the 1830s have gone out into all the, to the states of the United States and into all the world? How many of them have gone out and how many of us true Christians have gone out? Knocking on doors, riding bicycles, or riding tiny cars, going to faraway places in the United States and even remote places in the United States, or going across the world to learn another language for two years. Who does that? How many of us do that? What about the Muslims? The Muslims also, they spend, just like Mormons do, they spend millions upon millions of dollars to train their youth, to send out missionaries, to send out so-called refugees who are actually people who are sent to overthrow other countries. They do all that. They educate them. They have training camps. They do everything. They educate them in their own religion. They educate them in warfare, in use of weaponry, in the use of deceit. Muslims do that. But how many Christians do that? How many Christians use their money, their time, their resources, their education, their own children, how many of them do that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? Very few. Very few. That's what he's saying here. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. That's not the way it should be. That's not the way it should be. If we have the truth, what are we do, willing to do for the truth what they do for deception? What are we willing to do? Verse 9, further he says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, he says, mammon of unrighteousness. Make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. Firstly, mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon means money or wealth. It just happens to be that the English translations typically do not translate this word. The word is an Aramaic word used in the Greek language of the New Testament, and the Aramaic word and the Greek mean, both mean money or wealth, riches. That's what it means. So mammon means that. So use the unrighteous money or the money of unrighteousness. And that also needs a clarification. Why does he say it's unrighteous money? Not that money in and of itself is evil and that we should never touch it or use it. That's not what he means. Just like um, there are other things that are ordained by God that can be abused. They're not wrong, but they can be abused, such as the eating of oil, cooking oil, 
oil, but too much of that is bad. The eating of fat and, and even rich food, um, the eating of sweets like honey and sugar, it, it can be used and it has its proper place, but too much of it is not good. The eating of meat, the drinking of alcohol, all of these kinds of things in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them, but it's the abuse of them. And they are commonly abused. Because they are commonly abused, just like money is commonly abused, he calls it the money of unrighteousness, because it is commonly abused. Now, if the world can use money, or whatever else, if they can use it for unrighteous ends, why can't we use it for righteous ends, for heavenly, eternal purposes? Why can't we use it in the right way? Is that not what Abraham did? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were they not rich men? Yes. Isn't that what David and Solomon did? Were they not rich men? Yes, that's what they did. Even his addressee, Luke's addressee here in the book of Luke, he is Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, which likely means that that is a title for somebody in the Roman government who converted to the faith. Somebody in the Roman government, most excellent Theophilus is his addressee. And likely this official in the Roman government would have been wealthy. And he's teaching him, it's okay to be wealthy, but it depends on how you use your wealth. Are you using it for the kingdom? Or are you squandering it on yourself and on your pleasures? Or are you using it for the kingdom of God? Therefore, it's not wrong to have it. It's wrong to misuse it, is his point. So why don't we use it for the right way, for the right purposes? So that when we make friends, whenever we are then in a desperate situation, our friends will help us. Are we generous to our friends? Are we generous to those who know Christ? Are we generous in the church? Are we generous like that? Because when we are at one time in a state of desperation, they may be there and able to help us. One day we will need help. Another day, another person will need help and we help each other. If the world can help each other, why can't we help each other? We're supposed to help each other. Verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Here is the principle. If you cannot be faithful, trustworthy, honorable in the use of something small, then why should anybody give you more than that? If you cannot take care of $10 properly without spending it the same hour on, on candy right away, somebody gives you ten, uh, $10, let's say your parents give you $10, you're 15 years old, and you live close to a store. They, they give you $10, however, for whatever reason, you have $10, maybe it's a gift, a birthday gift, you've got $10, and then within that hour, you walk down the block, and you go buy $10 of candy. Is that right? Is that right? Just to squander it immediately, just like that? So he's saying, why should anybody then give you $100? If you're going to spend it. Because on the $100, you might go buy something that's, that's worthless and, and useless. And then if they, they gave you $100, why should they give you $1,000? If you misuse the $100, why should they give you $1,000? No. You have to show yourself to be faithful in the small amount first before you can have more. In the same way, the unrighteous behave. He says, 
he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So if you squander it, then don't expect to get more. If you are faithful with it, okay, then you can expect to receive more. This works, this is the way God works. Why should God give you more if you're going to squander it? Verse 11. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? Who will entrust the true riches to you? Is anybody really going to give you anything more? Now, we're talking about riches and material things, but we may also say this about spiritual matters. Can people trust you on spiritual matters? If they ask you to pray for them, will you pray for them? If they ask you to help them with something in a spiritual way, and you uh, don't help them, can they trust you again? No. Right? So who's going to give you more and more spiritual responsibilities if you can't be faithful with a little bit? Nobody. And God will not. Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here is a, a big test. Here is a big test. You know, in the world, it's very easy to misuse and squander and be careless and reckless with other people's possessions. Is it not? Isn't that what happens often in employment? You work for a company and whatever is there in the office or in the factory, you don't take care of it properly. Well, it's, it doesn't belong to me anyways. It's the owners and so who cares? I'm like, or you might steal some of it, something. Is that right? Is that good? He says right here, if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Why should you receive even more and have it belong to you when you don't even care about somebody else's stuff? If you don't care about somebody else's stuff, that shows if you truly love your neighbor, right? If you care for somebody else's belongings, that shows if you truly love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, therefore, you will show that you love God. But if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't love God. Don't expect to receive more of your own if you won't be faithful in what people give you. Whether it's resources, whether it's money, whether it's time, whatever it might be, don't expect more. And finally, he says in 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot have two masters, he says. Absolutely not. It doesn't work that way. Either you are a son of light or son of darkness. You are a son of God or a son of the devil. You are either having the Lord as your master or Satan as your master is the implication. And either it's God or it's money. Money can be an idol and could be master over you. Money can enslave you. Either you love God, serve God, worship God, or you worship money as an idol. Those are the only two options. He says, you will have hate for one and love for the other. You will hold to one and despise the other. 
But you cannot hate both, you cannot love both. It doesn't work like that. You have to love God and hate the money. Love God and hate the money. In the right way, according to someone who has once said, we need to learn to love God and use things rather than love things and use God. What's the right sequence or what's the right priority? Love God and use things, the things He's given you into your hand. Love God and use things. Don't love things and use God. Use God as a genie. Use God as a, as a very uh, beneficent grandfather who will give you whatever you ask. No, don't use him like that. Love him and use the things he gives you because there is a love and hate relationship. But who do we love? If we love God, we will have a desire to wisely use the resources he gives us, we'll be faithful in the use of those resources, we'll use them for his kingdom, not for our flesh, we will seek to love him and not the things. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.